My late father felt that a leader's job was to give people a better vision of themselves. And so, you know, he's he's giving people the vision of you're creating the best hotel in the city. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an exceptional guest I am so excited to share with you today. Her name is Mitzi Purdue, and she's a science and health writer. Her Scripps Howard column, The Environment in You, was the most widely syndicated environmental column in the country. Mitzi combines the experience of three longtime family businesses. Her father, Ernest Henderson co-founded the Sheridan Hotel chain, and her late husband, Frank Perdue, was the second generation in the poultry company that today operates in more than 50 countries. She herself founded Ceres Farms in 1974. Mitzi is a businesswoman, author, and master storyteller. She holds degrees from Harvard and George Washington University, is a past president of the 35,000-member American Agri Women and was one of the U.S. delegates to the United Nations Conference on Women in Nairobi. She currently writes for the Academy of Women's Health, Genetic Engineering, and Biotechnology News. In addition, Mitzi is the author of more than 1,600 newspaper and magazine articles on family business, food, agriculture, the environment, philanthropy, biotechnology, genetic engineering, and women's health. Her passion is combating human trafficking, and there's so many great things we're going to talk about today. Mitzi, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you on the show. Well, sure joy to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. There's, there's so many things that we can talk about, including your new book, How to Be Up and Down Times, which we're going to get into. But I want to talk about the story because you, you have this unique experience of growing up with a father who founded one of the most successful businesses in the world. Talk to us about what that was like, some of the big lessons you learned and how that helped influence what you're doing today. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, It's true. My father was the co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain. And I got to watch him, you know, as a little girl growing up. And I discovered something wonderful, which is I had five siblings and I had the perfect way of getting parental attention by asking him about the his business. And, you know, kids want parental attention, and that was my magic key. You know, Daddy, why did you do this? Daddy, why did you do that? And it was very, very obvious to me as a kid growing up that he was really successful because, would you know, whenever we traveled, it was in presidential suites, and, you know, people would sort of bow and scrape before my daddy. So here's the kind of thing that I learned from him. Like one of the things that I learned from him, which I kind of hope that our audience might enjoy knowing, 
which is how the name Sheraton came to be because his name was Henderson. Why is the Sheraton Hotels called Sheraton? And there's, there's a lesson to what I'm about to say, but I'll tell the story first. The name Sheraton came about when, during the Great Depression, he had bought his first three hotels. The third one had a great big giant neon sign at the top of it saying Sheraton. But he learned that that, ho- that, that neon sign cost $10,000. And as a good New England Yankee, he was much too frugal to want to tear it down. But you do want, for purposes of advertising, if you're going to form a chain, you want to be able to advertise one name rather than the name of three different hotels. And Sheraton got its name because by accident, there was a Sheraton Hotel in Springfield, Massachusetts. And that's why he named the, his, his hotels from then on Sheraton. But you know, there was an additional reason why he wanted Sheraton rather than Henderson. He told me that he felt that the name Henderson wasn't euphonious, which means it didn't have a ring to it. And I loved the fact that he was modest enough that he didn't have to have his name on it. He did what was best for the company. And I cherished that. But then there are other stories that I heard from him, and I'm dying to, to give a daily helping of something else that he did. And something that I think, you know, a daughter would know this, business schools wouldn't know it. I don't think you'd read it in a business article. But when he'd take over a hotel, it was at the height of the Great Depression when he, when he got started in 1933. And at that time, there was 25% unemployment in the United States. And when he'd take over a hotel, he'd know that all the people who were working there were probably terrified that they were going to lose their jobs. And if they lost their job, wouldn't, wouldn't find another. I mean, it would mean the bread line. So when he took possession of a hotel, the first thing he'd do, the day that he had taken possession, he'd invite all the employees to come into the hotel ballroom. And, you know, he knew it's a demoralized bunch who's really worried. So the first words out of his mouth always were, I want every one of you to stay in your job. And the reason that I want you to stay in your job is I believe in you. I know that you know your job better than anybody else in the world. And my job in this is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you'll see in a few months, this hotel is going to turn around. It's going to be profitable. It's going to be an example for the rest of the city that things can turn around. And you're part of the team that's going to do this. Cool. Very cool. Very powerful and very relevant to today's times where there's so much economic uncertainty. I think so. But that's part one of the story. Part two. He told me that the next day, he'd have to spend a fairly large amount of money refurbishing the hotel to make it ready. You know, if it's on the verge of bankruptcy, it's gone to seed. You know, the the carpets are stained, the curtains are frayed. But what he'd do would be he'd hire you know, decorators, electricians, plumbers, just everybody to spruce up the hotel. But the first money he ever spent was in areas that the paying public would never see. He, the first money was always spent on the areas 
where only the employees would see it. Like, for example, the employee dining room, kitchen, lockers, showers, even the rickety old elevators. The first money he ever spent was on the areas that would make the employees feel important and valued. And I asked him, you know, why did you do that? Because wouldn't it make more sense to put the money just from the beginning into areas that you'll get your money back by sprucing up the areas that the paying public would see? And he said, no. He said that the success of a hotel, or for that matter, any enterprise, pretty much depends on the employees at every level. And this was a way of communicating to them how important they are. And then a lesson from that, he told me people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. And this was my way of communicating. They're really important and I believe in them. Double cool? Double cool for sure. And even that's not the end of the story. And again, you know, this is what I remember from being a little girl, but I remember it quite clearly because I mean, he was my daddy and he impressed me and I loved him. So I asked him, you know, daddy, why did you promise everybody that they could keep their jobs? You know, why not make them earn it? You know, why not see who was really performing and then take the jobs of the people who weren't performing and give it to somebody else? And he said, that in his world, there were three major ways of getting people to do what you want. And those three, let's start with intimidation. He said, I could have stood up there in front of you know, 400 people, 800 people, and I could have told them, shape up or you're fired. But he said, yeah, you probably get a lot of compliance that way because people don't want to lose their jobs. But he said, what's wrong with intimidation is People do it grudgingly. It's it's never something that's going to make them want to give their all to the project. They want to do enough to get by. So he he said that intimidation, at least in his world, was how about off the table, right? Way number two of getting people to do what you want, bribery. He said the problem with bribery is it's too transactional. First, people will only work for the bribe rather than the bigger goal of making the hotel great. And then on top of that, you have to keep upping the bribe. People don't stay bought. So intimidation's off the table, bribery's off the table. So what did he recommend? Inspire, don't require. When he was telling the employees that first day that he believed in them and that they were part of the team that was going to make this the best hotel in the city, one that would be an example to everybody else to show that things could turn around even in the most dire times. He said, the woman who's maybe making beds or waiting on table or maybe the guy who's bartending, they're no longer thinking I'm making beds or waiting on tables or tending bar. No, they're part of making this the best hotel in the city, an inspiration to everybody else. And when you're part of a team, And when you're working for something bigger than yourself, it's at that point when he, as a leader, was practicing inspire, don't require, that's what makes people go the extra mile. That's what makes people really make an enterprise a success. And proof of the pudding, 
You started with one hotel at the time of his death? 400 hotels. Wild. I mean, that formula really, 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 really worked for him. I can assume that that lesson you carried over to what you did with Purdue. Uh, I, I did play a minor role. I mean, Frank, to me, it's it's the most amazing thing in the world, at least in my world. I had so many things in common with my late father. My late father felt that a leader's job was to give people a better vision of themselves. And so, you know, he's, he's giving people the vision of you're creating the best hotel in the city. Well, my late husband, let me tell a quick story that, that sort of reveals where he's coming from. When we first got married, and we hadn't known each other very long before we married, so it was, you know, a very rapid marriage. And we had just come back from our honeymoon. And I absolutely startled him by telling him, oh, Frank, I think we should entertain every single person who works for the company and we should do it in our home. Well, you know, that took him aback and his, his, you know, his immediate reaction to it was, yeah, that's not practical. There's 16,000 employees. Although he used the word associates because in Purdue land, there aren't employees, there are associates. Well, he said, you know, 16,000 is way too many. and. I kind of pretended that I hadn't processed that he was saying no. And I told him, let's have them a hundred at a time. And he said, no, that's way too many. And I said, I bet we could put it together in six weeks. No, that's way too soon. Well, we kept going round and round with, with my kind of fleshing out this idea of how we were going to entertain everybody. And you know, initially it was, you know, where did, what planet did she set down from? But as we talked, and this is, going to reveal something about Frank. His initial no was because it was way, way, way outside his comfort level to have that many people in his home and to be doing it continuously. But he was also forever on the lookout for ways to show the people he worked with. And notice I said with and not that they worked for him. He was forever looking for ways to show the people who worked with him how important they were to him. And he gradually changed his mind from, no, that's impractical, to, you know, that's a good idea. Let's do it. And six weeks later, we invited the secretaries, or I guess we call them administrative assistants, with the idea that 100 administrative assistants could communicate to everybody else that our parties were fun and not scary. And from then on, for the next 17 years, pretty close to three times a month, would invite people in groups like, I don't know, the electricians, the accountants, the truckers, the veterinarians, everybody. And at these parties, here's what Frank did that I felt was fairly close to the kind of thing that my father did. You know, in both cases, both men wanted to communicate how important the employees were and how much he believed they believed in them. Well, in the case of Frank, at these parties, he did something that, you know, even when I think about it today, I kind of get goosebumps. But you know, here he's the head of a company that's a Fortune 500 size company. At these parties, we would have them, you know, mainly in our living room, and there would be a great big buffet table. And Frank Purdue would stand behind the buffet table and wait on his employees. 
And I'm thinking as I watch this, how many heads of Fortune 500 companies would invite people into their homes and then wait on them? And then at the end of the evening, he'd take questions from people. And I'd also report on how the company was doing. And you know, what must it mean for people to hear from you know, the big boss, the owner, the good things that were happening in the company and the problems and the challenges. And, you know, he was, he was as honest and forthright as a human being could be. They were getting a real view from the horse's mouth of how the company was doing. And then he'd accept questions and he'd answer them, you know, again, with just tremendous transparency. And at the end of every evening, he'd say some version of, I know that the company wouldn't be what it is today without you. Thank you. And I know that this was important to the, to the employees who work there because I've actually attended funerals where the next of kin would tell me that the most meaningful thing in the deceased life was being at Frank's Purdue's home, being entertained and waited on by him, and that this just meant everything to them. But Frank did it for a reason that I think I can put into words, and it's a quote from the famous psychiatrist of 100 years ago, William James. And this, you know, I know that you like to give people, I know that you like to give people takeaways. This might be one of the most important takeaways because it surely, it surely influenced Frank's approach to life. And the quote is, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And Frank delivered appreciation wherever he could. And these dinners were one of the ways of doing it. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. powerful and holds truer today, I think, than ever before in that we know that through data, so much of the young people in the workforce today are not only craving that sense of appreciation, but want to know that the organizations they're working for are trying to help make the world a better place. And so when I hear that, I, I think that that makes so much sense. And it's interesting because Frank obviously got it. And it seems like we went many, many years until companies started recognizing that on a greater scale. You do hear more and more. It, it seems like the pendulum is swinging that way. But I think Frank was kind of ahead of his time. Certainly, certainly. The story that I just told, I, and I should have told the date right off, but it was 1988. And so here we are 32 years later, but, and maybe there are people today who entertain their employees in their home, but, but I think Frank was, 
his, his whole approach. And you know something else that he used to do? One of the great privileges of my life was that I often would get to tag along beside him when we would have factory visits. And you know, on the subject of making employees feel important, or I think I should use the word associate because as a Purdue, that's what I'm supposed to say. When, when we'd visit the associates, you know, visiting the line, watching people, you know, working there, I was always surprised by the number of names he knew. I mean, I could bet that Frank Purdue, and I've seen Jim Purdue, his son, do exactly the same thing. The number of names they knew, it had to be in the thousands. So he'd call somebody by name as we're walking through. Maybe there's a plant with a thousand people in it. And they'd say, Mitzi, I'd like you to meet Delcy. Uh, Delcy's son just got into college. Or meet Tony. Tony has had 30 years without a sick day. And, you know, how, what it must mean when, when the head of the company knows you by name and, and cares enough to, to visit the plant and ask you how you're doing. And something else that I noticed about him, and I'd love to know from your experience if, if you have an opinion on how many people do this today, but during these factory visits, I noticed that there wasn't a trace of Frank Purdue with his nose in the air saying, you know, I'm the big boss and you're just an employee. No, it was nothing like that. It was as if teammates, and you know, maybe he's the captain of the team, but he totally respects everybody's role. And so as far as I can tell, he was just an extreme egalitarian. When he was talking with somebody on the line, it was with the same respect and attention and caring that it have with the president of the United States. And I've seen him talk with presidents and I've seen him talk with people in the line. And I think he had the same respect for both. I mean, a true egalitarian. And I admired that so much about him. That, that's a wonderful story and analogy to you know, the president being treated the same as somebody who's working on the line. And I, I know that's something that Dale Carnegie talked about, you know, that the most important thing about a person is their name and you know, getting to know that person. And you know, whether it's a receptionist or whether it's somebody in the C-suite, that they should be treated equally with dignity and respect. So I, I love that story. Well, I so relate to what you just said, because one of the things that, you know, I'm thinking about this for the first time, but maybe one of the reasons that Frank Perdue and Ernest Henderson had a somewhat similar approach is both men were Dale Carnegie fans. Father told me that he read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence Mm -hmm. People, that both he and my mother would read it and reread it every 10 years. Frank, oh, and he also took the course. Frank Perdue also was such a fan of Dale Carnegie that not only did he take it, but he paid for all his top employees to take that course too. You know, maybe that's a magic secret why both were successful and and why both were kind of similar in in their approach to how they treated people. It may be actually my my mentor in my first job out of college when I was it was a sales job. I was sent to that training as well, and it was it was fantastic and and just uh, gives you a perspective on people that I don't think is taught in business, and I certainly not in, in an undergrad environment. So very interesting, very interesting. Dale Carnegie is on my bookshelf as well, and, and, and a favorite for sure. Well, I, I have a degree from a prestigious college, 
And I have sometimes, you know, kind of examining my soul, which has done me more good in life, my college degree or a 14-week Dale Carnegie course? And guess what? They're not paying me to say this. Probably nobody from Dale Carnegie has a clue that I am saying this. But to me, if, if, you, if you had to take the knowledge away from that I learned of how to treat people, how to respect people, what makes people tick, if you were to take that knowledge away from me or whatever I learned in college, I think I'd pick Dale Carnegie. Because how about one of the most important things in life is to know how to get along with people. Mm-hmm. Dale Carnegie teaches that. Which, are you up for another story about my father? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do if you had said no. <laughs> uh, I mentioned when I told the story of my father and the day that he'd take over possession of, of any hotel or ownership, that the first words out of his mouth were always, you keep your job. Well, how did he have the knowledge and the understanding that nobody's going to listen to a word he's saying until he's taken away their terror of losing their jobs? Well, he knew that. But how did he have... Yeah, how did he have so much understanding of human nature that it enabled him to build an enterprise that employed 20,000 people? You know, was it innate or did he somehow learn it? And I have a very clear-cut, inarguable answer to that question. He learned it. Not only wasn't it natural, but when he was 26 years old and he'd just gotten engaged to my mother, my mother came from Wheeling, West Virginia to Cambridge, Massachusetts to meet her future in-laws. And my father's mother, my grandmother, Berta, told my mother, don't marry Ernest. He can never stick to a job. You're going to end up poor. Well, mother said, I don't care. I love him. And guess what? They didn't. (laughs) She didn't end up poor. But father took that as an extreme wake-up call. If his own mother is saying that, is pointing out that he can't stick to a job, well, he went to whatever the equivalent of the Yellow Pages in 1923 were, and he found a career guidance counselor. It was a company that's still in business today, Johnson O'Connor. But father was tested with a full day of tests by Johnson O'Connor. And at the end of it, Johnson O'Connor told him, Mr. Henderson, you have the worst human relations skills I've ever come across. Wow. Uh, and I, I can kind of see why, you know, if, if the apple falls not far from the tree, if, if his mother is so blunt as to tell mother that don't marry my son, <laughs> uh, you know, he probably didn't have great role models. Uh, so Johnson O'Connor said, you have, like, I guess it's the equivalent of, of a handicap. Uh, you're, you're clearly a bright fellow, Johnson O'Connor told him. But if you want a job that you can stick to, I recommend that you, that you have a job in a laboratory where you do science work, where you don't have to interact with people. Well, that was probably extremely good advice, except father took it as a challenge. Mm. He figured... You know, he's even told me this, that the most important skill in the world is getting along with people. You know, everything is about that. And so he made it a lifetime study to learn 
what makes people tick. And, you know, Dale Carnegie was certainly an enormous part of that. But I also know that he was forever taking courses like public speaking or salesmanship or things that, that get you focused on what make people tick. But he was, he'd also attend psychology lectures. He'd read books in psychology. And later on in life, he even made, you know, when he was a famous man, he'd even have as guests, you know, over the weekend in our summer house, he'd have some of the most famous psychologists around like B.F. Skinner or Eddie Bernays or just names that if you're in that field, uh, you'd be amazed. And he did all of this so that he could, could become ever more proficient in overcoming his deficit. His, so that by the end of, I don't know, decades of study, boy, he probably knew more about what makes people tick and how to motivate them and just how to, how to bring out the best in people. I mean, I've, I've quoted before his saying that a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. What was his greatest deficit was the ability to understand people and get along with them. Became his 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 greatest asset. Because I mean, who would who would predict that somebody who was supposed to end up in a laboratory not interacting with anybody would make a success of the hotel industry at a time when everybody else was going broke. Mm-hmm. And I love that because it tells me that human relations skills, even if you're not natively gifted in that, they can be learned. Yes. I mean, isn't that an oh wow? It's more than an oh wow. It's it's critical because because people need to recognize that everything about them can be improved.